Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is Women's History Podcast, where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. This episode is part of our season on wit. We're doing something a little bit different and kind of fun this episode. Longtime listeners of the show will remember Samantha Snyder, who was my first ever guest on the podcast and a fabulous historian. Samantha is research librarian at the George Washington Presidential Library at Mount Vernon, and she's currently working on a book about Elizabeth Willing Powell with UVA Press. Can you tell us a little bit about that book, Samantha? Sure. So it is a all-encompassing biography of Elizabeth Willing Powell, um, who you'll learn about in a little bit, but it is very exciting as it is slated to be out in 2026. So it's been a long and winding journey already, and it's only just beginning. Congratulations, and uh, mark your calendars, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Just a couple years. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have Sam on the show, but I'm also excited to be welcoming back Dr. Cassandra Good an award-winning historian and author of the fabulous book, First Family, George Washington's Heirs and the Making of America. The last time Cassandra was on the show, we talked about a letter where uh, Madame Bonaparte was wearing a shockingly see-through dress. It's one of my favorite letters and episodes. So if you haven't listened to that one, go check it out. But welcome, Cassandra. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited to do this. Thank you so much for being here. It's just a pleasure to have you both. So with two guests, we're going to be talking about a letter from Elizabeth Willing Powell and Elizabeth Park Custis. So I've mentioned that name. We've done letters from Elizabeth Willing Powell and Elizabeth Park Custis before, but even knowing what I know about them, I didn't actually realize that they had a friendship. So I was very excited when you sent me this letter. I think this is a great way to talk about some very interesting people. Samantha, for our new listeners, can you give a brief introduction to Elizabeth Willing Powell? Elizabeth Willing Powell was a woman who lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she lived in Philly from 1742 to 1830. So she saw a lot of changes in the founding of the country. And she was quite well connected in Philly. And kind of what she's best known for in the history world at the moment is her very close relationship with Georgia Martha Washington, which also extends to the grandchildren. Big powerhouse, political powerhouse. <laughs> yeah, I think when we, we did our first letter, we sort of talked about how she managed the social life of Philadelphia when, when George and Martha Washington were there. Cassandra, could you introduce us again to Elizabeth Park Custis? I know that your readers will have been familiar with her uh, from various letters, but just a quick summary. So this is Martha Washington's eldest granddaughter by her son with her first husband. So her son, John Park Custis. And he had four surviving children. Eliza Park Custis was the eldest of them. She's born in 1776. She was not living with George and Martha Washington. She was living with her mother and stepfather most of the time, but she did visit during the presidency in Philadelphia. So she really was part of that larger circle, just not necessarily as much part as uh, Nellie, her younger sister, who lived full-time with George and Martha. And Eliza, out of the siblings, I would say is the brashest and boldest. Yeah, I'd agree there. If you haven't seen it, we'll probably use this in the the episode art, but the portrait of Elizabeth Park Custis Law by, is it a Gilbert Stewart? It's a Gilbert Stewart. And it's very unusual because she's standing with her arms crossed. And that is not even a pose most men have in portraits. 
And she's also giving a sort of look at us. And I think you can see a lot of her personality in that portrait. So how did, Sam, if you don't mind telling me, how did Elizabeth Powell get to know Eliza? She and her husband, Samuel Powell, traveled to Mount Vernon um, just after the Constitutional Convention ended. They were on their way down to um, Westover Plantation to visit another very powerful woman, Mary Willing Bird, who is Elizabeth Powell's older sister by a year. They stopped at Mount Vernon, and I think that is probably where they met all of the grandchildren, because there's this whole exchange about posture collars for the granddaughters, not for Nellie, just the older two. But I think that's probably where the Powells met the grandchildren. I know they met Nellie and Washi there. So what's what's a posture collar? <laughs> it was meant to help just that, their posture. Martha has her doing proxy shopping for her basically in Philadelphia. And Elizabeth writes back this whole thing about how important posture is for women and to hold the head erect and to not like be in a foolish bashfulness and like hide away. So I like that image of her wanting the granddaughters to do that. Elizabeth Powell did not have any biological children that survived. So she was very much like this with a lot of different younger men and women, but very motherly. So I think that's when she probably first met her. And I assume, I assume that they also got to know each other again in Philadelphia when Eliza Custis is visiting with her grandparents. So gets to know her again as an adult versus just as a kid. Yeah. That was 1787. So she would have been 11. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, as a teenager and young adult, and then, and then in the 19th century, of course, I would say Nellie was probably Elizabeth Powell's favorite. I like the idea of Eliza going from being like a slouchy, like hiding in the background 11-year-old to a like crossing her arms and looking directly at Gilbert Stewart. Yeah. All because of those the posture collar did because it. of those posture crawlers that Elizabeth Powell gave. <laughs> Although if you look at what Martha Washington is saying during that visit, she's complaining that Eliza's sulking in the house a lot of the time. So it's interesting that that portrait is probably done around this same time and that Eliza also is probably secretly courting her future husband at this point. So Eliza sounds like she's a little bit complicated. She sounds, you know, like she was not always easy to have at home. But the other thing I'd say about the posture thing, from what I understand about wearing an empire waist gown, which is what people were wearing at the time, if you try and wear one of those now, unless you pull your shoulders back or actually wearing a corset, it's not flattering. Part of the posture is about making those gowns look good. So we've got a little bit of an introduction to the, the cast of characters here. Cassandra, would you mind setting up the context of what's going on at exactly the time that this letter is written? This is an interesting time in Eliza's life. So this is early 1816. Eliza had first separated from her husband, and then and they were separated in 1804, and then they got officially divorced several years before this letter. And then Eliza is really, she's very pro-French, is a Democratic Republican, and they are pro-French, but she's at the like, I admire Napoleon level. She says something about him like, I'm sure he has some faults like all people do, but overall, he's pretty great. 
And so she's also really interested in trying to marry somebody French. And so she's flirting with the French ambassador and that doesn't go anywhere. And then there's a series of con men from Europe that come through Washington at this point, And she falls in love with one of them, uh, Francois Denis de Greff, who claims that he has been, you know, falsely accused of wrongdoing from the French military and is in exile because of that. From what I can tell, he actually had done multiple things wrong, including some gambling that wasn't allowed. It's unclear if he was also serving as some kind of spy, but he comes to Washington. A lot of people recognize that he's a con man. Eliza doesn't. Falls for him. They get engaged, and he goes back to France. He, for some reason, needs to get approval from somebody in the military to marry her. And he's like, look, it's George and Martha's granddaughter. They refuse him permission. Then at some point in 1815, he dies by suicide. He slits his throat. Oh, wow. And Eliza finds this out in late 1815, early 1816. And she is so devastated that she falls into an illness. And that is the context in which this letter is written. Can we just talk like briefly about Eliza's taste in men? <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her first husband like was also, I mean. He was eccentric. He was eccentric. And he was, I mean, kind of like he was in the land speculation thing. Like, I don't know if he was exactly a con man, but like he, he it seems like he married Eliza a little bit to just sort of because she was George Martha Washington's granddaughter and that this would look good for him. Right. It certainly was beneficial to him, although she wouldn't have chosen to marry him unless she actually, and if you look at his writings, I think he actually did love her. I think they're split. They just couldn't get along with each other. That seems to be the main reason that they split. He may have also had a mistress that he brought back from Europe with him. I actually don't think that would have been enough <laughs> for them to split because that wasn't, you know, entirely unusual. Um, although I, I think it would have hurt Eliza's pride. I, but I do think that marriage never really worked. It, it was okay for a few years and then it fell apart pretty quickly. And then, yeah, she, she definitely flirts with several different people, but it seems like it's French guys that she's really interested in. And unfortunately, she you know, never is successful in love again. Eliza's ill. And where is she? Where is she living in um, D.C.? Is she in the federal city at this time? Where is she at the point of this? I think she is back in D.C. At this point, she was going back and forth some of the time to Philadelphia, but she was not like close to Elizabeth Powell in Philadelphia. She was actually in Germantown. So I think at this point, she is back in Washington. All right, so let's dive into the letter. This is February 28th, 1816, Elizabeth Willing Powell to Elizabeth Park Custis. You mention with much sensibility the prompt, kind attentions of your friends in your late illness. I hope among those your own sisters were most assiduously conspicuous. I well know that you and they on political subjects are too often at variance. 
but a difference in opinion on those topics ought not to interrupt family harmony. Each should cede a little to the prejudice, misapprehension, misinformation, and personal attachments by which the wisest and best of men have been fatally deceived. Even those well-versed in the profound science of government. My barometer that is my side admonishes me to lay down my pen, but I cannot resist mentioning to you a vague report that is in circulation here, that you are again to be united to Mr. Law. The reasons assigned for the reunion are the ardent solicitation of your daughter, that you may be reunited, and a natural desire on the part of her parents to place her in a more eligible situation than that she is in at present. All right, so... This is very interesting. Cassandra, would you mind telling me a little bit about Eliza's relationship with her daughter? Eliza had one daughter who is a teenager at this point. Actually, I guess she's close to 20. And the daughter had been sort of a point of contention between Eliza and Thomas Law because when they were just separated, there was not that I've ever been able to find any kind of custody agreement. But once you got divorced, back then, women could not get custody of their children because the idea was how would they provide for them. So Thomas Law sort of automatically gets custody of their daughter, and he pretty quickly decides he's going to move her to Philadelphia for school, which obviously upsets her mother. So I think that there is this tension between them about Eliza's education, Eliza Jr., we can call her, and sort of her status. And given the stigma with divorce, it's not going to help her on the marriage market to have divorced parents. So that may be where Elizabeth Howell is coming from here. And how old is her daughter at this point? I think that her daughter at this point is 19. So about the age when she married Thomas Law, right? Oh, that's true. That is about the age... Eliza herself got married, yes. Samantha, you mentioned that Elizabeth Powell can be a little bit motherly. I'm definitely getting a motherly vibe from this letter. How would you describe their relationship? It's not as close as maybe it seems in this letter. She was very motherly to everybody, but she also knew how to play to people's egos (laughs) a little bit, or not egos, just more so, I don't know, their emotions. Cassie, how did we phrase this? We were talking about the fact that it sounds like, you know, she's very close with her and motherly. And then you have that other quote where you see what Elizabeth Powell actually thinks about Eliza. You see that it's a slightly less sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot less sympathetic than it might seem. When she mentions, she says something, um, she's like, I'm glad to hear that people were helping you in your late illness. I hope your sisters were assiduously conspicuous. It sort of sounds like she's taking Eliza's side against any like fight that might be going on between her and her sisters. So what would your opinion be about that? Well, if you keep reading, she's kind of saying, she's saying, I hope your sisters know that you're sick. And I know that you have been arguing about politics and just get over it in order to be family because family is more important than your political views you mentioned about their real relationship. I I think they were close. There is a quote from a letter right around that time, a couple years earlier, Elizabeth writes to a niece who was a contemporary of Eliza and calls her the eccentric Mrs. Custis and that she is 
ever a pleasing companion. She is a philanthropist by nature, beneficent and charitable from precept and example, good-humored and compliant, but she is no one's enemy but her own. Well, and then going on to say, with respect to herself, she has been imprudent and has suffered accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, Elizabeth is very observant. And I think she did care for Eliza for sure, but it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. Like there was other thoughts behind the scenes. She's clearly nudging her on the issue with her sisters. You know, I'm not sure that she's taking Eliza's side here. She's sort of giving her unsolicited advice, though, on, (laughs) you know, she doesn't know the full dynamic of what's going on between Eliza and her siblings. But she does go on to say that she's seen it with men. She's seen these men in the government deal with this. And of course she has, because she's been so well connected over the years. So to her, it's more abstract. That's, I think, where she's coming from. Let's talk a little bit about this political differences between Eliza and her sisters. Eliza is so pro-French that she's like, this Napoleon guy seems legit. (laughs) How would you describe her sister's politics? They are polar opposite if you look at the next sister, Martha Custis Peter or Patty Peter. And the best example of this is that in the War of 1812, Patty and her husband did not evacuate from D.C. They watched the burning of the city from their house on a hill in Georgetown. And then a few days later, they go down to the city. They check things out. They talk to the troops. They learn that it's Wellington's British troops come from the Peninsular Campaign that have burnt the city. Patty's a few months pregnant at this point. When she has a baby in January 1815, she names that child Britannia Wellington. And I think that gives us a sense of just how pro-British she is. So she's a Federalist. The Federalists are pro-British, but not that pro-British. There were Federalists. The Federalist Party is dying off by this point, partially because of the War of 1812 and their siding with the British. Nellie and Wash Custis, the younger brother, they are Federalists, but they don't side with the British during the war the way Patty basically seems to. Still, though, in terms of their social connections, they're mostly connected with people who are Federalists. The other thing that I think Elizabeth Powell doesn't realize that's going on between the siblings, Eliza says a few times around this time, her siblings all are happy with their own families and homes. Eliza feels like a third wheel, basically. Like nobody needs her. She doesn't fit in with them. And it's partially the politics, right? If if your sister's that pro-British and you're that pro-French, you can see during, you know, the aftermath of a war, that being an issue. But I think there's also other dynamics. You can tell from some of the comments that I mean Nellie says at one point that Eliza's health would be better if she chose. Right? That there's this sense that Eliza <laughs> is melodramatic. I guess the first point I wanted to make is, this is slightly refreshing to me to have a woman writing to another woman about politics and talking about her sisters and her siblings' politics, because so much of the history about women at this time period is that they were not political, right? Or if they were political, that part of what made them okay is that they weren't partisan. Yeah. Right? But they are partisan. It's very refreshing to just read, like, yeah, these are are people that are so interested in politics, they're partisan, they're fighting about it in the exact same way that she says the wisest and the best of men. It's interesting that 
Powell is sort of comparing Elizabeth to the wisest and best of men in a way, because I know there's a number of quotes of Elizabeth Law, or Elizabeth Parcustis, sorry, where she's writing about how if she had been a man, she would be taken seriously. Like if she had been a man, she would have gotten better education. And like, she's absolutely 100% right. And she dresses sort of in a masculine sort of militaristic way when she first moves to DC in a way that I think is interesting. There's just like a touch of that in here where Eliza Powell like knows Elizabeth enough to say that this is a way to sort of talk her down a little bit and be like, look, even the wisest and best of men can get pulled into this partisan politics. And you are currently there, like you are currently (laughs) separated from your siblings because of these disagreements when you could just not be. The other thing that's occurring to me that I hadn't thought about before with this letter is, and I don't remember the exact timing of this in England, George III and George IV, the Prince Regent, that family really splits up over politics in part. And I'm sure everybody in America was aware of this at the time. Basically, the Prince Regent, the eldest son of George III, becomes a Whig, the sort of opposition party, mostly to piss off his father. That is probably pretty well known here in the idea that even in the ruling family in the country, in England, you could have this family split over politics and it doesn't work out well for anybody. Well, and Elizabeth herself, she had nine siblings. And at that point, sadly, at this point, her sister, her last sister passes away later that year. But she also, she dealt with that with with nine other siblings to to deal with all their different types of politics. She has that in the back of her mind too, I'm sure. And her nephews at this point, especially, were were kind of splitting off, who were of the same around the same age as as the Custis grandchildren at this point. They were all a little bit younger. And then I did find she calls, Elizabeth calls Bonaparte. Well, she talks about a French minister. This is all the way back in 1810, but she writes it in her almanac. She says, a French villain, the minister of that yet great scoundrel Bonaparte. Is Powell more of your, your standard Federalist? Would you describe her? At this point, like Cassie was saying, the Federalists are kind of dying out. And she addresses that in a letter that's an, an, a little bit earlier of a point, but she was very anti-British, but also not pro-French. This last paragraph, first off, the my barometer that is my side admonishes me to lay down my pen. Very cute. Love that. That's her sign off. That's her thing. Like your most obedient, humble servant, hers is my barometer, admonishes me to lay down my pen. To put it into context for her, she was in her 70s. She was 74 at this point and um, had had a liver infection. She'd always had problems with her side after that, very dramatically would talk about it all the time. And her hand always hurt when she wrote letters. So she sort of ends it with that she's heard a rumor that she might get back together with Thomas Law, who she divorced for what must have been at the time period like unusual reasons to just divorce somebody for not getting along. And she throws a little guilt trip in there with the ardent solicitation of your daughter that you may be reunited and a natural desire to place her in a more. So she's basically saying you not getting back together with Thomas Law is hurting your daughter's chances of marrying well. Is that how you would understand that, Cassandra? Yeah, I I think she's sort of hinting at that. And this would have, I think, really rankled Eliza Custis because Eliza didn't want to get divorced. She knew it was going to make her look bad. 
that she had wanted to separate, but she was okay with just keeping a separation. And so when Thomas Law actually filed for divorce, she was not happy about it. You could not get a divorce just based on, we don't get along. It had to be based on either adultery or abandonment, basically, or abuse. So they hadn't been living together for a long time. So Law just basically said, she has abandoned bed and board. She's not living in my household and doing her duties as a wife anymore. Had to have annoyed Eliza. The other thing about this divorce is everybody in Washington finds out that it has gone through before Eliza does. And she writes a letter saying, I heard from a friend that everybody at a party was talking about and I hadn't even gotten the news yet. So the divorce is not uh, a subject she really wants to talk about. And there's no way she and Thomas Law are getting back together. The absolute boldness for Thomas Law to have two children from a previous unmarried relationship and then a possible mistress and then to be like, well, I'm divorcing my wife (laughs) and she's willing to put up with so much. That is just absolutely bold. Well, and it may be that he was divorcing her because he wanted to marry somebody else. And the rumor at the time, which he never fully denied was that it was Nellie Custis's friend, Elizabeth Bordley in Philadelphia, that he wanted to marry. There's some poems, too, at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania that he wrote to her, right? Well, and it causes, it causes sort of a stir. Nellie has told some people this rumor, and Thomas Law basically says to his sons, did you tell? I told you not to tell anybody. So it does sound like he was interested in Elizabeth Bordley, and then he is sort of mortified that she becomes subject of gossip, and he had still gotten along with the Custises until this point, and then after that, things sort of fell apart there. I'm not sure why Elizabeth Powell would have heard a rumor they were getting back together, because that was not going to happen. But also what I find interesting about Elizabeth at this point is that she's kind of my Elizabeth Powell is that, you know, she's so much older than them, but she's hearing all of this and she's, you know, friendly with all of these people who are having all this drama. And like she was, she was friends with Thomas Law. There's letters from her to him, but she introduced her nephew when he was on his grand tour to Thomas Law's family abroad. He became connected with his sisters, but then She's close with Elizabeth Bordley, Nellie Custis, all these different people. So she's kind of watching it all from above. And I wonder if she had seen Eliza's daughter, Eliza Jr. I think she's still in Philadelphia at this point. And Thomas Law is living in Philadelphia at this point, I believe, most of the time, if not full time. And I think Thomas Law and her nephew were friends with one another. This was a small world of elite white people at this point. Yes. Very, very, very small. Oh, that's I, I like I gasped when she said when when Cassandra said Bordley Gibson, because if you're not in the little world that we are in, perhaps that name doesn't mean anything to you. But like one of the best collections of Nellie's letters is just all of her letters with Bordley Gibson. And so I have worked with that book quite a bit. So I feel like I know that person a little bit. And so it's just startling to me. I am as offended as the Custises were that he would have tried to to shoot his shot. <laughs> but and also of course he wrote a poem. Of course he wrote a poem. <laughs> yes, he was always writing poems. 
he writes an interesting poem about the sort of fall of his marriage to Eliza, too. <laughs> well, there wasn't therapy back then. <laughs> you just you just wrote a dramatic yeah, poem. And then he had to seek out Elizabeth Powell for all her advice, all her unwarranted advice, or she just doled it out on her own. So, so there was no chance they were going to get back together. How does Eliza's daughter end up marrying pretty well, despite her sort of dramatic family background? She does. She marries the son of a Revolutionary War officer who had known George Washington. This is somebody in the Rogers family in Baltimore. That marriage seems to be pretty happy. There is drama around the wedding itself over whether to invite Thomas Law's two sons that are half Indian, as an Indian subcontinent, Indian from his time when he was working in India and had two children. We don't know anything about the mother. So he has these two mixed-race children that actually have been fairly integrated into D.C. society at this point. One of the sons is a lawyer. They go to Yale. But it appears that, that the Custises did not invite these boys to the wedding, and it causes a lot of pain in the family. And it is probably a race thing that even though they sort of were treated in many ways as white, that perhaps either the Rogers or the Custises decided it wasn't appropriate for their racial sensibilities for them to be there. I mean, these are, we should remember too, major enslavers. Uh, the Rogers have enslaved people. The Custises have hundreds of enslaved people. So that becomes an ugly incident. But Eliza Jr. doesn't get married for another few years. So this is like, it's a complicated situation. I really feel bad for Elizabeth Parcustis. And I sort of understand where Elizabeth Powell is coming from as well. If I could ask each of you to talk a little bit about what you find compelling about this letter and what you find compelling about each of these women. Samantha touched on this before, the fact that we're seeing, well, both of you touched on this, that we're seeing multiple women talking about politics and political differences. And we're seeing just how partisan women could be at this time. It feels like something that historians of gender in this period have to remind people over and over again, that women were involved in politics. Women were engaged with this. They were partisan and it was important to them. Still, there's this public idea partially coming from the rhetoric at the time that, you know, women are staying out of politics. And I think Eliza in particular, while she was certainly melodramatic, possibly eccentric, as Elizabeth Powell describes her, she breaks a lot of boundaries in this period, even more so than some other women. And I find that enticing about her. The fact that she's willing to go farther than other women are. And I think that's part of why so many people are critical of her, is that she is not fitting into these normal bounds of womanhood, but that also makes her much more interesting to study. I think this is a, a really interesting letter. I like, I mean, when you read the entire thing, when you don't just read the excerpt, it's interesting to see, on my end, it's interesting to see still how well-connected she is, because she's much older than these people at this point. And it's interesting to see her talk about her experiences in a way, because she witnessed all of this happen over the years. 
I also find it interesting the emotional connection she has with these people. And I think her as a woman, she's incredibly interesting to study. Doesn't necessarily step outside the bounds of normal womanhood. She knows how to toe that line really well, but she uses the power that she has as much as she can. Well, if if the Barbie film taught me anything, it's that you can accomplish a lot within the bounds of normal womanhood. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to see that tomorrow. So <laughs> excited. I've not had any spoilers. So no spoilers. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, both of you. I am so excited. Everybody should read Cassandra's book about the Custis family. It's so good. And I'm just so excited, Samantha, to hear what you have to say about Elizabeth Willing Powell. I know you've been working on her for a long time, and I just am really excited for this project. For my listeners, thank you so much for listening. I will leave links to these letters, all the letters that I can, in the show notes. And until next time, I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant is a production of R2 Studios at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. I'm Katherine Garrett, the creator and host of this podcast. Jeanette Patrick and Jim Embusky are the executive producers. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to past episodes and check out more great podcasts from R2 Studios. We tell unexpected stories based on the latest research to connect listeners with the past. So head to r2studios.org to start listening.